Welcome to the At A Total Loss podcast, where lost moms candidly talk about stillbirth, baby loss, grief, survival, and all things in between. I'm Catherine. My first child, Brody, died at full term and was stillborn in January of 2022. I literally thought the sadness was going to kill me. And while trying to survive, I reached out to lost moms to connect with others who knew how I felt. It was these conversations that saved me, and to this day, they still do. We discuss our babies, life with grief. We even laugh, a lot actually. It is my hope that hearing our stories will help you realize that you are not alone in any of this, and maybe even serve as a guide to finding light in the dark. So get comfortable and grab some tissues as we discuss this crazy life after baby death that has left us all at a total loss. Yeah, I can hear you really well. You comfortable? You good? Yes, I just saw a patient who was very sick, so I'm glad I made it on time because it got a little bit crazy there, but we got it. (laughs) Oh, good. Okay, so you're currently at work right now. Well, I added back a few hours. I thought it was going to be a very leisurely, I'd have time to kind of prepare, and then a patient called with 10 out of 10 pain and brought her in because it's the right thing to do, and I was with her for 40 minutes, but I made it work, so here I am. I really, I like your style. (laughs) I really dig your style. Yeah, no, thank you for hopping on. You know, these conversations, because you and I haven't really exchanged too much yet, so this is really just us connecting um, and just kind of like pretending like we're not really recording, (laughs) but it's it's so helpful to have your insight on because I think it's important to get kind of a glimpse into, you know, those who are actually doing the work right now and helping us out because this community does need so much help. So again, thank you so much for doing this. I'm super excited to have this conversation. Um, can you just go ahead and kick us off to like your background and how, how we're having this conversation, how we got here? Of course. So yeah. Um, my name is Heather Florescu. Um, I am an OBGYN. I'm originally from um, New York City in Greenwich Village, but I've been in Rochester, New York since 1996. Um, I originally thought I was going to be a pediatrician, and then I didn't like my pediatrics rotations. And my first day on obstetrics, I met a, t- a resident who was the first doctor I ever met who actually kept it real with his patients. Um, I felt like really connected with patients in a way that I hadn't seen before. And there was a lot of like, we're wearing our white coat and you're the patient and we're the doctor. And he was the first pa- person I saw who didn't wear a white coat and was really very natural. So that kind of got me excited about it. And then it very quickly took off from there. And he actually saw that I had the maturity to handle a loss. So I'd actually delivered my first um, term loss um, as a medical student. And which is not very common that we don't usually let them do it, but he kind of knew I could handle it. And she had had twins and one of them had um, was born still and the other was born living. Um, And I think it kind of started from there. But honestly, my love of taking care of this community, I think, was somewhat organic as well. Um, My personal side, a lot of people ask me, I had a year and a half of infertility and then I was blessed with triplets. Um, who are now 15. Um, And they were born at 35 weeks. And I faced down stillbirth. And I thought about it all the time, of course, and had all the monitoring. And people asked me if that was what led to this, but I was doing this before I had them. Um, So Mm -hmm. before they were born, I was really very devoted to the patients I met as a resident who had lost babies and stuff like that. Um, So fast forward in private practice, I've 
always been very good at being in the grief space with people. I kind of naturally knew the right things to do without any formal training. Um, so I always have been very comfortable helping people through loss and not feeling like it overwhelms me and not making it about me. And so I kind of organically started doing very classic pregnancy after loss care like they do in UK without even knowing I was doing it. So similar to all these clinics, I kind of was organically doing those things. And one of my lost moms asked me after she had her third child if we could teach. And then we started teaching. And then that led to me um, being asked by them to go to the Star Legacy Summit in 2019. And it was there that I learned that stillbirth may be preventable. And one of the really weird things about it was I went thinking I was going to meet other doctors like me. And there were so few physicians at this conference and there were some, but they were like pathologists or other researchers in the field, or they were from other countries. There were very few OBGYNs from the United States who took the time to be there. And I started to wonder like, where is my community? Uh, and is this community even exist? And after I found out about um, stillbirth being prevented and the protocol, um, from the UK and Australia, I kind of went home and have been kind of on a one woman mission to try to convince the minds of people to change things. Um, our practice in Rochester, New York is called Women's Gynecology and Childbirth Associates. And um, my practice partners were amazing from the get-go and we incorporated the protocol here. So we've been using it for nearly four years, um, but I've been working very hard to incorporate aspects of it throughout. Um, when I got involved with PUSH, they, um, after I spoke on the, at the PUSH March last year, a bunch of lost moms asked me to like to do social media. So this was my first foray into any of this, but I started the Instagram account in October and I've really been enjoying spreading information to not only my colleagues, but the birth community and being somebody who gets it for the lost community and kind of being an outsider who is an insider mm -hmm. to kind of explain to people how lost moms work and kind of that the thinking is very different. So, wow. and that's like, the, that's the key to a lot of things actually. Yeah. In the post, in the post aftermath of, of loss, yeah. but also you're tackling kind of two spaces, you're tackling prevention and you're tackling mm -hmm. what happens after but, you know, we all, you know, we've suffered it than the care that we need to receive after you're doing great. I'm on your Instagram right now. I like that you drop facts. Like that's really yeah. important. You are not speaking from opinion. You are, but they're based off of the facts. And some of these facts are absolutely mind blowing. And I, oh my gosh, it's like, I feel like I have so many questions I want to ask you because I personally had a horrible experience with my first OBGYN that res resulted in Brody's death at 37-ish weeks. Um, and a lot of things were missed and it was very casually, I was very casually treated. Um, and then after there was absolutely no reach out, there was no attempts to help. So, you know, hearing from somebody who's actually, who has not experienced personally a stillbirth, but is still an outsider in the community. I like that you said it that way. Can I ask you, like backing up, how long have you been doing this, would you say? Oh, like doing like- Your whole career. Yeah, Since I think my whole career. I mean, so, I so don't think- How many yeah. stillbirths have you actually witnessed, would you say? Oh, let's see. So from, 
I mean, I would, I would have to go back, like, I would say stillbirth and like pre-viable losses. I mean, it's got to be 50 to 100, you know, mm -hmm. probably. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, some of the ones I have, I, some patients are patients who transfer to me. Some are losses, you know, that I didn't deliver, my partners did, but, you know, I kind of sometimes have taken over on the grief side of things. Um, I, I, I really enjoy being there for people and um, it's kind of where I think I, my niche is. And so um, I, it's not just support for loss. Um, I support my widows. I support, you know, my people who've lost grown children. So um, I have a lot of people, you know, who I am. So helping. you are, you are caring for the emotional aspect of OBGYN as well, which I yeah. think people don't take into consideration. Do you, so at what point in your career were you starting to kind of put some pieces together? Like there's a lack of, I mean, I, maybe it's education on the part of the healthcare, the medical providers, or at what point were you like, okay, this is not really the space that it should be. And also, you know, where you were like, you said at the summit, you started to put it together that these were preventable. And so then did you kind of, was there like a lightning moment where you were like, oh my gosh, nowhere in my career was I ever really told about, like educated on a lot of this. Why was I not? At what point were you kind of like, I got to take action? Was this early in your career? Or did you kind of wait a little bit after, before you got some ground underneath you? No, the action was all 2019 on. 19? Um, okay. Yeah. So I... I really thought, I truly believe there was a whole community of doctors out there. I did not think I'd be sitting here talking to you today. I didn't think I would be one of the go-to people for this. I truly went to this conference, the summit in 2019, hoping to learn more about grief-related counseling and care. Um, I honestly don't even entirely know why I went. I'm going to talk about it at the summit coming up in a few weeks. I went because I was asked to by people I care about. And I was like, oh, I can go to Minnesota for the weekend. And then on the Thursday of the conference, Dr. Catherine Calderwood, who was the chief medical officer at the time, mm -hmm. spoke about what made her create the protocol. And I remember there was just such a fatalistic view. And even though in hindsight, I saw so many losses where the patient had been seen the day before and everything was fine, and then they went home and the baby died the next day. Clearly that was a preventable loss, mm. but it wasn't that the Kool-Aid in the community is that it wasn't somehow that it was inevitable. And yes, it maybe was inevitable when the mother, the patient called and presented, but it wasn't inevitable the day before when their baby looked fine. Um, it was a savable life. And I think I really, I don't think there was any maliciousness honestly in the OB community. I think this is just, Kind of like what the status quo is, what everybody believes is true. That's what I was just about to ask you. You said the Kool-Aid and, and, and that was the feeling that I got was it was just throw your hands up in the air. We don't know. I think the quote that I received in the ICU was it was like getting struck by lightning. It won't happen mm -hmm. again. Just do it again. When in all actuality, if I had not found out the reasons behind or the potential causes of death for Brody, I don't think this pregnancy would be. I think it would end the same way. So mm -hmm. I, I, that's actually not factual. So I'm curious in you now starting to enter this space. And if you say something that you want me to take it out, I will totally take it. I edit this myself. So you're not going to, I don't want you to like 
get yourself in trouble or anything, but what kind of pushback are you seeing when you try to enter the space? Like, especially at first, were you mm-hmm. saying, because you're saying you don't think it's malicious. Sometimes when we step back and we're like, did they not care? I mean, or was it like you said, just a lack of knowledge on the subject? I think it's a lack of knowledge. I think when you see the patient the day before, right? And then you send them home and the next day the baby died. How can you not feel guilt and blame? So it's such an easy thing to say. So complex. Why there's so much pushback. I will tell you when I came home without using names, I reached out to people who know me since I was a medical student and said, oh my God, you guys, this is what I heard. We can prevent stillbirth. And I really, I thought I was going to get a seat at the table. Um, I heard a lot of pushback that what happens in UK and Australia doesn't matter here. Um, I heard a lot of pushback that the evidence isn't there for fetal movement education, which is such a huge piece of, you know, the protocol is making sure people know about fetal movement. And I think I've thought tons about this. And I think what I've ultimately decided is you can't study why fetal movement works because it's too logical. Um, And it's, it's, but yet the studies aren't showing it. And I think there's a lot of issues with those studies, but a lot of the pushback was that if we try to educate about babies' movements, we're going to scare pregnant patients unnecessarily. Um, a lot of pushback in having a standardized response to it. And kind of this belief, I mean, when I was at ACOG last year, I talked to a lot of older near-retirement doctors, and they were like, I always educate about fetal movements. And I kind of looked at them. I said, with all due respect, you're probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, I think you're probably making the assumption that this is so obvious, but it's not. I, it, it's not obvious to our patients that a baby that's not moving is at risk for stillbirth because everything out there is saying they sleep, they run out of room, all these things. So you may think your patient knows about the importance of fetal movement, but they're truly not. Um, and I'm, I'm a very persuasive person. So I find if I'm one-on-one and I just get a seat at the table, I can sway people. I just, you know, I'm an OBGYN in private practice and I am not MFM and I have no public health degree. And I think it's very hard for the big wigs at ACOG or wherever to really consider that I have something to say. Um, And it's hard. And I can't imagine being a lost parent who doesn't get heard either. And, you know, while the NIHCD did this whole huge thing a few months ago to put together this whole thing, I know how this song and dance works. They make these big documents that look like a nice gesture to the lost community, but I would love to see if there's anything actually going to come of it. I was saying it's like, I think they do these things like it's rearranging deck chairs on a Titanic. It's like, see, we're doing something, but we're not actually keeping the ship from sinking. It blows my mind. It's why, why does nobody want to remedy this at all? I mean, I don't mind you even saying this because I think it's out there already and like the ProPublica stuff and everything is I think there's a fear that litigiony follows if you come out and say that this can be prevented, that a low risk stillbirth, you know, because all of prenatal care is designed to prevent stillbirth. If you think about it. Right. I mean, we do the monitoring mm-hmm. of hypertension, diabetes, small babies, but, but no, we're third, not-, not no third trimester ultrasound for a majority of us. Yes. If you don't have an indication, you're not getting it. So the ones that are preventable are the ones that are the, the, as you guys always say, the textbook pregnancies that are falling through the cracks. 
And I think the idea, the thought is, is that prenatal care is so perfect that it's going to catch all the babies that would be at risk and anyone who fall through the cracks, nothing could have been done. But there's so many lost moms who are saying at the top of their lungs a few days before something's wrong with my baby, or they say, I'm worried about my baby and they get blown off about it. Or they are the patient who comes in the day before has a great NST says, I don't want to go home. And then they get sent home and something happens. <sighs> and, you know, that's, that's a whole different piece of it too. I can't help but start to question, and no one tells you this after a perfectly healthy, low-risk stillbirth, like pregnancy that ends in a stillbirth out of absolutely nowhere. No one tells you that you're just going to start to spiral down these rabbit holes of why won't anybody... I mean, he had an autopsy. He had a placenta pathology, which was reported that everything was fine. Everything was fine. You'll never know the answer. So who's even doing these tests? Like there's no additional research. There's no one standing at the foot of the bed saying, I need to know what happened here. Looking for clots, looking for abnormalities in the placenta, looking for things with the cord, just looking for evidence of what killed the baby. And I know there's different layers and different variations. I think I'm speaking from a place of full term stillbirth. Mm -hmm. So just want to preface with that. Um, so it's almost like then you go to your doctors and you're like, but why aren't you helping me find the answers to this? And they just kind of go like this. They wipe their hands. And I find that really interesting as to not even of not even from a, okay, so if you are any other job in the world and your job is to do one thing and you fail at it, why would you not want to know what happened there? Why would you not want to investigate? Oh my God, how can I do better? And then I think, I think it's always going to go back to what you said, the litigious thing. I think it's always going to go back to not wanting to get into trouble. I had a medical malpractice attorney. She was obstetrics negligence, actually. And she said, there's some sort of like, I'm sorry clause. They cannot say I'm sorry because that would direct maybe fault or blame. And that would ensue probably lawsuits. Are we talking about a situation here where it's strictly down to maybe lawsuits and even insurance like is there like something going on right now where it's just some some blockages that are going on um i think to the insurance piece i would tell you one of the blockages is that they don't pay us enough money mm -hmm. um the reimbursement for all the prenatal care and delivery is really so low so i think a lot of the active listening is not possible in a lot of busy practices because in order to make ends meet, you're seeing more patients than you want to see mm -hmm. because it's simply not there. So Interesting. I think if, if any endpoint for the insurance side of things is if they paid us the amount of effort we put in for every single pregnancy and delivery, I think you wouldn't see improved care. But when OB visits pay us nothing because we don't bill it to the end and we need to make ends meet, especially if you're a private practice, the reimbursement of insurance companies is not, you know, adequate to be able to give the time. So a lot of practices just, you know, they hump it through all those patients and they don't have the time to pick up the subtleties of the patient's conversation. It's kind of like this rapid fire thing. Um, insurance companies don't pay for ultrasounds in the third trimester if there isn't a diagnosis. So I guess that's one aspect of that. Um, I think there's a lot more looking into whether that should be standard of care. So I hope that does change. Um, right now, we have really no problem because everybody's had COVID at this point. 
so we can use that as a diagnosis. So I, it's rare that our patients aren't getting one, um, but that's, I think, that piece. I think the litigiony side, I think, and I think, I hope it changes, is we know very well that bedside manner and honesty and humanity make all the difference in the world. It's true. And it's lacking very it, a lot yeah. in this space. Yeah. And I think if after the loss, because we know even at best care, 47% of term stillbirths are preventable, right? So 53%, there's nothing you could have done. But when you say here the thing, when you say you're sorry and you make your space available to the person and you say, here are the things we're gonna do to figure out why this happened for your baby and you're open about it. And but you know, to be in the space of you guys and how you're feeling after term loss, it is hard. And I have had some incredibly pointed, hard conversations with my lost moms. And it's not easy that, you know, you guys are stricken with grief and you're, you're blaming yourselves. You're blame you're, you're looking for why this happened and to be able to sit there with your own grief and your own, everybody's doing the woulda, coulda, shoulda. It is really hard to get in that space and figure out how to have an honest conversation about here are the things I wish could have gone better. Here are the things that, you know, and have that conversation. You know, it's, I find it easier when there's, we call it surgical misadventure. So if you do a surgery and there's a known complication, I feel like that's an easier space to be in and say, mm. you know, we talked about this, this happened. I am so sorry, but we're going to get you better. That I think is easier for people and is becoming easier than the, this person is never going to raise their child. I'm thinking about my role or my practice's role or my hospital's role in that. How do I support them through their grief and say, I'm sorry, but not bring, not make it seem like I think we could have done something differently. And it's always a hard thing. It's a, it's never an easy conversation. I don't want to, I don't want to make light in any way that I think that's an easy conversation for me. The conversation immediately acutely after a loss is incredibly hard um for everybody involved are these usually patients that were within your practice that lost or patients that are finding you after their loss switching over to you those conversations are a little bit easier the people who transfer yeah. because they're coming to me because they've heard about me um mm -hmm. and they're not placing blame anybody and, and some people don't you know i have i you know i have patients who know that you know, the baby was moving great. They went to sleep. They woke up the next morning. They didn't feel the baby move. They called right away. They got evaluated right away. Mm -hmm. Those patients are not feeling that way, right? Um, because they were like, this is a court, you know, if, if the cord accident, which is only 20% of the term. But, you know, the patients who went to sleep with great movement, woke up with none, called right away and came in, you're not really getting in that space. The place that you're going to get into it is the patient who was seen a few days before mm -hmm. and everything was fine whether it's like cervical insufficiency or, you know, whatever it is, those are the patients where they're like, if you had me that day, you could have done A, B or C mm. and things would have been okay. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that's where it is. It is a difficult conversation and I don't want to be complacent about that. It's incredibly hard on the family side. and It's incredibly hard on our side because, you know, I've had patients where I am in my mind saying, what did I miss? You know, what, mm. what was I not seeing? And, but I think my mind works a little bit differently in that I feel that I say it to the patient and then I call and talk to every single expert I can 
to help me realize I did the best I could, but to give them answers as well. Okay. But so, yeah, go ahead. No, I just, I don't want to make it seem like this is an easy space to get in with somebody who's acutely grieving because it certainly isn't. Um, it's, you know, it yeah, is it's, I mean, very I'm hard. currently pregnant after loss. I'm 30 weeks. I am being dubbed as low risk. I am having, I had to get admitted for some preterm labor, which I think are contractions because I was um, feeling stress. Like I had a panic attack, like a lack of movement made me flip out. It was a trauma response. I mean, that's a different type of patient. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm lucky mm-hmm. that I'm with a practice where the doctor came in specifically to see me and was like, look, I expect you to do this several times. Like I expect you mm-hmm. to have a really rough last trimester of this pregnancy. And I appreciated that so much because he didn't invalidate how I was feeling, how much your mental space is going to affect your, your physical, um, any little thing that has gone off on this pregnancy, I am up all night thinking I'm killing this baby, just laying there. It is a definitely a different space. And for you to recognize that I'm so appreciative of that because there's a lot of doctors that do not, and I would say more than do, And that is something that needs a little bit more light and education on how to handle us because it technically is a high risk, in my opinion, because you, your mental and trauma is just making your whole system out of whack. I'm right. I mean, I'm glad you agree with that. That's something I try to tell people that ask me, I'm like, you have every single right to feel like this is a high pressure, (laughs) urgency, high risk. I just need you to find a doctor that sees it the same way that we do. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I've had multiple patients tell me as they enter the third trimester that if I could put him in a coma, they would be happy. Exactly. You just know? let me sleep yeah. till he's here. Yeah. Yeah. Just give me some, give me some Ambien and I'll go all the way through. And do you have a, a background in, in psychology or just, or have you just been noting behaviors yeah. your whole career? I think, I think I have that empath power. Yeah. I hope I do at least. Yeah. Um, so I read people really well. I, I, I don't, it's been something my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why I kind of organically knew exactly how to take care of the community. Um, and I'm learning. I mean, I'm not saying I'm I'm better now than I was, but my just understanding of how to take care of somebody after and being like validating every single thing they felt and said and never making them hopefully feel crazy or that they were asking for too much and um I, I think it just came naturally to me. As I said, there's many things that don't, but this being in grief space and grief counseling has always come very organically and easily for me. And I was never trained in it at all. Do you think that it should be part of the curriculum in med school? I think it should be. I think they think they teach it. Um, I think there's a few guiding principles that when we teach, you know, I, I think the biggest thing is we live in a society where we try to meet people at where they're at. And I think one of my first things I always tell people is one, what feels right with this community is often wrong. And what feels wrong is often right. Mm. Um, And I kind of go into examples of that, but, you know, talking about the baby, asking about the baby, you know, all those kind of things. But then I also tell them that you never make it about you. Like there is no point where you're you say, let me tell you about something. And I think a lot of people try to meet people with their grief and say, oh, you lost your baby. Well, I lost my dog. And believe me, my dogs are two of my best friends in the whole world. But you don't have to, when you say something about your life and what's 
happening, you make the grieving person feel like they have to give to you instead of making about them. And I think that's just something I've been able to get into that space and not let it cause me, you know, fear for my own life. Cause as I said, I've supported people whose children have cancer and going through breast cancer and all those kind of things. But like being able to just say, you know what, I'm in this space right now and it's for them and it's not for me. Um, of course I get benefits from it. I love, and I hope that there's so many people out there that thank me for what I've done for them. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I've made people's lives better. Um, obviously that's a dream as a doctor, but it, the, the time I'm giving is not for me. It's to be there. And I don't think I realized, honestly, until four years ago, what my degree actually meant to other people. Mm -hmm. Because I've always been around, I mean, the vast majority of my friends were doctors, you know, in my med school, obviously, and in residency. And I never really had the power for my degree because I've always had people call me by my first name, all that kind of stuff. But to then realize having an MD gave me more clout um, with my patients and that my writing a simple, hey, I'm thinking about you today in our portal means more than if it came from somebody else is kind of humbling. Oh, I would fall out if I got one of those from my doctors out of nowhere yeah. for some reason. Yeah. It's so special. Yeah. I, I, you know, I've had patients where, you know, I send the message after message, and they never write me back and then they'll come back for a visit and be like, I'll tell you those messages got me through. And um, I like the phrase that I always tell people is that you ha I'm in your pocket. Mm -hmm. And I think just giving them that I'm always here for you. I'm always a card that you can pull out. You know, I'm just, mm -hmm. you can play that card. I'm here for you. And, you know, don't ever feel alone. You said you're teaching. Are you teaching these kind of strategies to others? Yes. Okay. So, Is that what you're teaching? Yeah. So before COVID, we taught probably nine times. And so I bring my local lost moms. Um, and we've taught nurses, doulas are our favorite groups to teach. Um, the doulas are amazing. They really buy the message of empowerment. They want to bomb their patients and we really enjoy them. Um, we've taught PA students, um, residents, um, and medical students. So, um, and we stopped it kind of during COVID and now we've gotten back into it again. Well, that's awesome. I, I want, I, this what makes me want to take it back to the term standard of care, because it seems like you're kind of above it, like you're going above and beyond the standard of care. Is that kind is that true? I, okay, I first learned this term, actually, let me preface with this, from the obstetric negligence, negligence attorney, because that's how they were basing the foundation of the case on if, this, if it was dropped below the standard of care. And so that term really hit me, and I was trying to figure out, well, what is the standard of care? So who is establishing what it is and how do you know if you are dropping below or going above it? So the, there's no, nothing I am doing as part of a standard of care. Yeah. So none of my grief counseling, none of that is people who are not doing that are not violating any standard of care. Okay. So um, this is, I have not made a dime for any of the hours that I spend on the phone each week helping my patients. So it is purely pro bono altruistic stuff. Okay. There must um, be like some fine print underneath the term standard of care that I don't know. So it's something, I guess, yeah. financially based. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm just yeah. using it in the general sense, I guess. Yes. So okay. yeah, the standard of care, where I think I would more be talking to is how do you manage a pregnancy? Right. And that is pretty well. So you have to be, this is why I think a lot of the organizations are wary is 
they want all the evidence in the world to change the standard of care. So to say that, I'm sure you've heard of um, the estimated placental volume. Yeah. So to say, to make EPV standard of care, because I've already had people, which I'm, I'm not really interested in being somebody who's going into the courtroom. Um, There's just not the place I want to be. But I've had people reach out to me. I can't say, for example, that a missed stillbirth due to a small placenta was a violation of standard of care mm. because it is not. So even if the person who lost that baby believes that had the small placenta been found that their baby would have lived, that is not a violation of standard of care because- Not checking the placenta is not a violation because it's not actually part of the protocol. Exactly. Okay. Versus um, you had a patient come in for an appointment and they're 37 weeks and they measured 30 weeks and you didn't get an ultrasound and then their baby died a few days later from fetal growth restriction, I think you could argue that that would be a, not the standard of care because if a babe, if your fundal height is small, you're supposed to get an ultrasound. Right. Do you think ours, how you, you mentioned other countries earlier, are we radically different than, than their standard? Um, so we have to remember that you know, a lot of the countries with the lowest stillbirth rates have um, socialized medicine. Um, And when you have socialized medicine, you really get the positive, everybody kind of doing basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. So if they come out with a protocol, um, that is going to be used more widely versus adapting anything here with our kind of piecemeal insurance, you know, healthcare is hard. Um, UK and Australia, you know, adapted these protocols. And they have seen the reduction in it. But I think where we're very different is we're not we're not educating patients like we should because of this fear factor, which I don't mm-hmm. think I've seen exist in other countries. Mm-hmm. This I'm going to make her anxious. Um, I also think we do a lot of things that don't, you know, so you don't have a randomized control trial that randomizes parents to ignoring their three-year-old at the pool versus letting them being there while they're swimming in the pool right Mm -hmm. because it's completely logical you should watch your kid at the pool and but for some reason that kind of exact logic right if there is lightning you get out of the pool there's no randomized control trial to see what is your odds of getting hit by lightning to stay in a pool when the lightning comes Mm -hmm. because why would you do that so there's so much that we do because it just makes sense but for some reason we're not translating that to fetal movement education we're not translating that into always assessing when somebody's worried. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why we're all terrified of our kids being poisoned or drowning. And when we make advice as pediatricians about those things, nobody is saying, you know, I can't believe you said that to me. You're fear mongering. How dare you tell me to watch my child at the pool, right? Mm -hmm. Every parent's going to say, thank you. They're going to be glad for that information. But when we say, you know what, maybe we should deliver you early because you're at increases for stillbirth. Or maybe we should talk about fetal movement. There's this part of our birth culture that says we're fear-mongering or that we're recommending things for things that are really rare, even though I just calculated this actually, that your um, chance of losing a child to drowning, there's 600 times more stillbirths than drownings of children every year. Holy moly. Yeah. Is it, is it, but the, yet, yeah, nothing, There's nothing. Is it, is it, yeah. Are they not valuing like we are the life? 
I think that's part of it. I think Yikes. that's possible that yeah. I don't think people truly understand what is lost when a baby is lost in utero. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you're right about that. I don't know that people are looking at this as the same as a three-year-old child who drowned, oh, both incredible tragedies, but it's this insult part. It's this fear-mongering. It's this, you're recommending interventions that aren't evidence-based, all this kind of stuff. It somehow comes into the birth sphere, but it doesn't come into the pediatric sphere, mm. you know, and nobody says you're fear mongering when we give SIDS recommendations to leave your, you know, and so I just, I, I don't understand where this barrier is. And we're not even talking about like physicians, right? Or our community in terms, we're talking about birth workers, you know, mm -hmm. home birth advocates, all those kind of things where there's this culture out there of like that every intervention we do is for our own gain, which I will tell you, I do a lot less work when somebody shows up nine centimeters and I deliver their baby than when I induce them at 38 weeks for growth restriction and it takes three days, right? Oh, yeah. Um, this idea that induction is better for us is like so wrong because it's so much more work for us. Yeah, it doesn't pay like us a, more, by the way. Interesting. Yeah, there's yeah, a rumor so that like, let's just do the C-section because I have somewhere to be and that, that's probably not accurate yeah. at all, yeah. Well, and I don't know if this is a, the C-section piece, but when yeah. we deliver a baby, we bill for the delivery. Mm. So if I have a patient come in and she's fully dilated, I throw my gloves on and I do the vaginal delivery, I make just as much money as the patient who has a growth-restricted baby at 37 weeks and I induce her for three days. So yeah. there is no financial incentive for induction, none. It, it is, is that is that why people aren't pushing it to prevent stillbirth at certain I mean because you have some doctors saying 39 weeks is full term some saying they won't induce before 38 there's like all these different rules that are so yeah. inconsistent I mean is that a possibility that they aren't pushing for any earlier inductions because they just don't want to do it no I don't think so I mean so yeah. the reason the reason why the earlier inductions aren't happening is yeah. because we can't know for sure until 39 weeks that the baby has gained everything it can from its mother. I see. So there still can be respiratory distress. There's increased risk of infections. So it's frowned upon electively inducing, meaning by elective induction, I mean, totally uncomplicated pregnancy. Mother wants to have the baby. Oh, I see. Yeah. Her husband. Got, right? Yeah. Somewhere to be. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I get until it. Until 39 okay. weeks, we're yeah. potentially putting the baby at risk. I if we have a baby that's less than third percentile, right? They get to term, we're delivering them at 37 weeks. We're doing that not for us. We are doing that because that baby has a real chance of dying inside in the weeks that follow. Yeah. And there is no incentive financial gain, which I think is a really important thing for the birth community to know that when we're making these recommendations for delivery, there is nothing more that goes in the pocket of the physician or the midwife. We're truly doing it because we want to prevent, again, we tell parents not to let their kids by the pool without supervision. Why trying to prevent a tragedy like stillbirth is fear-mongering in that we're doing something that isn't altruistic. All these recommendations are being done because really and truly everybody cares about the outcome for our patients we want a healthy baby we want a healthy mom and we're not doing that for our convenience we're doing it because it's the right thing to do because we don't want a tragedy like you know that you know obviously from maternal side of things we don't want something terrible to happen to the mom 
and we're trying to deliver a baby that's healthy and doesn't have to go to the NICU or mm -hmm. is stillborn. Yeah. The intentions are there. The good ones are there. So you, you post a lot of facts, like I said earlier in this, and you know, I don't know where you always source where you get your facts from. Are you even finding that there is a lot of information out there? Are there any research, is there any research being done at all? Like is to just kind of put the pieces together as to, because I read a statistic and obviously you know them better than me, but it's something along the lines of such and such amount of stillbirths happen or there's a percentage of people that this it ends in stillbirth, one out of 160, yes. But then like some percentage of that is like after 35 weeks, some crazy number where it's almost full term, late term, full term. Are you are you seeing any research being done on this currently? Um, I mean, it's hard to know. That's why the Shine for Autumn Act is so, yeah. cause you don't know what's currently being done. Um, yeah. In terms of like the EPV, I convinced our, one of our amazing um, high-risk OBs is doing a perspective study on it and Dr. Awesome. Stone is. Um, so that's amazing. I can't wait mm -hmm. to see what that shows, but um, I think it is understudied. I think that's why the Pregnancy Research Project that Star Legacy is doing is really important. Um, and they do need healthy pregnancies that don't have a risk of stillbirth in there. Because like I kind of posted about this really obvious phenomenon of like a sudden increased fetal movement or this, like I slept really well before I found out my baby died. That was a that, huge, wow. Yeah. And we're, but that's retrospective. So we're getting that from asking a bunch of healthy control births and stillbirths and looking backwards. But if we can get big studies that look at every single pregnant person and we can know, let's say, for example, a patient has that sudden increased field movement. If we know what is the odds of something happening to that baby, then we can say to that patient, you had this concern. Here's what we're going to do about it. Mm -hmm. But we don't have those numbers. We can we can certainly evaluate. But that's kind of why prospective studies for EPV are so important, because if we find a patient at 36 weeks who has a third percentile placenta, what are the complications going to happen? What are the frequency of the complications? Because we may know that one third of term stillbirths are caused by too small of a placenta, but what, what amount of too small placentas leads to a complication? Is it 1% or is it 95%? Mm -hmm. And if you find out that when you find that small placenta, 95% of those babies are going to have an issue if you wait till after the due date, then standard of care can change, right? So there are things that you, we need good data to really make a difference, but we can't get good perspective, large studies without funding, right? We can't, mm -hmm. you need, so a lot of it comes back to that. So is it, in, in what you're seeing, is it well known within your space that the number one cause of stillbirth is a small placenta? Is that, because yeah. I keep hearing oh, this. God, no, no. No, I mean, that I think people think it's court accident. Um, and I think that leads to a lot of lack of finding out why. So it's, oh, I delivered your stillborn baby and there was a nuchal cord. We know why this happened. We and don't I'm off the hook. Thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I know, I, I think that is very surprising. That is, it is not, as much as we know the placenta not being healthy is a cause of issues, nobody's realizing that we need to pay more attention. You know, it's, a, it, it's not thought of as the cause, even though the study came out in ACOG saying that placenta, you know, issues or the preventable stillbirths or placenta issues um, is still not really getting out there. And 
I mean, I think the hope is that this NIHCD is going to spread awareness and do more research, but I want to, I want them to put their money where their mouth is, you know, and see, you know, because we need, you need prospective studies to figure this out. You need to figure out what can we learn in early pregnancy? And it may not even just be small placenta, but what can we find that lets us know whose baby is going to end up with, you know, not just this is a complication, right? But any other complications. I was diagnosed with a blood clotting disorder after he died. And I was questioning why I wasn't given that blood test before. Uh, I'm doing Lovenox injections this round to make sure I have no clots because it wasn't ruled out that he died of a clot. We don't know. And I keep seeing this happen a lot. And I'm I even my insurance is now a year later saying that they're not going to pay for the blood clotting disorder test because it was unnecessary. And I find that that is just such a small piece of this that could potentially help uh, prevent stillbirths if we just know we have these clotting disorders. So adding that blood test pre-pregnancy or even very early in the first trimester, I think could be a huge game changer. It's little things like that, that I feel would just help a little bit. And it doesn't feel like the needle is moving. So, I mean, you're banging down doors. You, you're one woman show right now. I truly hope that there could be a coalition formed with you and other OBs in this country that really do have the same purpose. So, so what is your goal? What do you want to see happen in your <laughs> space? <laughs> Ooh, I like that one. Um, so, what my so my biggest goal right now is I I want ACOG to acknowledge fetal movement education in some way. Um, My big thing is right now, when a person calls with concerns about fetal movement, there is no standardized response. And they could be told by a secretary, oh, that's normal. My baby stopped moving at the end. You're good, honey. And not even get to a nurse or a doctor. They could be told by a nurse that the baby ran out of room or they should do juice or crackers. They could be told by a physician that is nothing to worry about. And ACOG does say in one of their bulletins in like page seven of 10 in one line that says, if a person calls with concerns about fetal movement, they should get evaluated, but it's buried in there. And I've been working really hard. I made this document and I can't get anybody to help me, but it basically says if it would basically, I took from this 10 page document and took out the information about the risks of decreased fetal movement And I put in this concise line that says, if your patient is worried, you should bring them in for evaluation. I feel like that alone would make a huge difference. Um, And when they get evaluated, I think we need to ask every patient, are you reassured? So I think that's another piece of the, I think the unreassured people are the ones that you really need to think about delivery, if it's possible. Because most are, most people are reassured. They come in and they're very reassured. Um, And then... I want a standard, the standardized protocol that we use in our practice to be kind of law of the land because we know protocol saves lives. So yeah. I think that's that's kind of my ACOG slash standard of care stuff. And then I really just want to spread awareness so there's not a single pregnant person in the United States who is worried about their baby's movements and are not calling because they're not educated. And um, I really want to try to work, you know, to get something where we just like if you ride a subway, you might see something about not smoking or other public health stuff. I would love something that's just in the space where people are, are that says, you, you know, you know, you're buying your baby better than anybody else. And here are things you should always call and it could expand beyond just fetal movement, right? 
you know, preeclampsia, all those kind of things, mm-hmm. say, call your doctor, you know, and see. And not be afraid to call, not be afraid to stand, yes. say something. That's, yeah, because yeah, a lot of times it's met with like your ridiculous kind of attitude, like mm-hmm. you're, nothing's wrong at all. And so everyone's afraid to do it. I think yeah. that would be wonderful. Um, I, I I know you're super busy. I want to leave you with like, have I, have I left out anything that you want to talk about that you want to, uh, your message that you want to put out there? I wouldn't want you to leave the, the, the um, episode without saying everything that you would like to get out there. No, I think you covered it all. I mean, I think, I think you're totally right though. The last thing you said is none of my goals to have a protocol and my goals to to have it said that all people with concerns should be evaluated and educated, it doesn't work if the person on the other side of the phone doesn't listen. Um, And so we really need to, as a community, and I think as a culture, right, listening is not everybody. Everybody has their own kind of narrative in their head. And I think people, I don't expect people to always be able to hear the emotions of somebody and know when somebody doesn't, says they're reassured, but they're truly not. But we can ask them and we can ask them open-ended questions and we can validate their feelings. And I think there's so much of like us trying to make somebody feel better by telling them they're not feeling what they're clearly feeling, right? It's like if somebody said, I'm having chest pain, you wouldn't say, no, your chest isn't really hurting. Like you figure out why they're having chest pain. And I think we need to validate every concern um, the same way we would if somebody said they had a headache. And we never tell somebody who says they have a headache, you don't have a headache. So to telling somebody who's pregnant, who's worried about something, oh, you're not really having that is really not very fair. And it's, I think it's a big part of the issue. So I think somehow teaching everybody who talks to a pregnant person, whether it's family members or friends or the, you know, healthcare is, you know, do active listening. Um, Make sure you're listening. You're not giving the patient a point of view that they're really not even looking for. Mm. Yeah. And there seems to be a huge difference in that of like an MFM office, as opposed to just, you know, an OBG, I mean, an OB's office, Whereas I guess the nature of why you're at an MFM would kind of constitute a little bit different of a more Mm in-depth protocol. And I've always wondered why the MFM protocol wasn't for OB. I mean, there's just seems to be a great divide between the two Um, because I'm seeing both right now and had no idea MFM even existed until this happened. So I think you are just getting started. I think you are getting your voice out there is the only thing you can really do right now and saying, you know, the protocol that I'm implementing is working. We're seeing a significant decrease in this. We're seeing results that are good here, you know, things like that. I feel like people just want to see, like, I don't care what you did, just tell me the end result. And then I'll let you know if it works or not, which I don't even know anymore because then I would have a, a living baby if that was actually accurate. But I, so you're speaking at the summit in June. Is it in June? Mm-hmm. I wish I can go, I could go, but. Um, it's on virtual. You can do virtually free. Oh, awesome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if you go on um, the Star Legacy Foundation.org, um, virtual is free. So it's easy to sign up and um, watch. They're actually only, I think they're only having 150 people in person. So, oh, but wow. many more hundreds are going to be listening. So yeah, I'm going to, I, I asked Lindsay Wimmer who founded it. I'm going to be the headliner. So I'm, <gasps> oh, I'm that's going exciting. to start the whole thing off. And I, yeah, I, I love public speaking. So I, I think I'm, I think it's going to be okay. Um, but well, you're going to set the tone for it. And I think you're going to get everybody fired up. Yeah. 
oh my god if i if i don't bring it then it's gonna set the tone wrong so i have to bring it but no um, pressure no pressure yeah no but i i i think it's pretty good i'm gonna talk about just how hard this has been but also what i've learned along the way and i'm just hoping that especially at this summit that somebody a physician a midwife whoever it is here's something that they're like i need to do this in my community because i i never felt a call to action before like this and this has been such an amazing four years of my life and i it given me depth to my life and, and my career in a way that i never thought i'd have mm-hmm. and i just if one percent of the people who hear something take it back to their community and start trying to bring change. Like we can get there. And with improved listening in this venue also comes improved listening for all patients, right? Cause we need to address the maternal mortality disparities and all the things that so much of this is listen to your patients, educate your patients. And that will translate to people calling sooner when they have preeclampsia or when their water broke or they think they might be in preterm labor. So this isn't just to improve standard of care to prevent stillbirth or improve care for people who had it. It's improved care for all people. Mm-hmm. And it, that's a big part of the mission too. It's huge. Yeah. It's a space that needs so much attention. It's shocking that it's 2023, halfway through it almost. And we're still demanding that there just be more special attention to it. So I appreciate everything that you're doing. I'm going to link um, the ways to contact you as far as like Instagram and whatever else you want to share. Um, do you have, do you do any sort of virtual con- consults with anybody or, okay. No. So yeah, I, I can't give specific medical advice. Right. Uh, so we actually, I had a couple people when I started doing this, asking if they could do like a second opinion with me. Um, The only way my malpractice would cover is if somebody came to Rochester, New York and saw me in the office. So I got that. So so I, that is literally the only way um, I am able to, um, my, my malpractice will not cover for personal medical advice. So I can't do that. Oh, okay. Unfortunately. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe someday. I don't know. We'll figure out a loophole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful this time of year. Hey, so, let's go. Field I trip. Yeah. You're going to be real busy for anybody in that area. That's for sure. After yeah. this, after this airs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> you're going to be showing up. Honestly, that's one of the number one questions I get is, can you share any special OBs in the area that are going to help me through mm-hmm. the next pregnancy. Um, so I think it's really a, your resource that is so, so needed, um, both yeah. preventatively and in the aftermath of loss. Oh, and in that vein, if anybody, I, I think most of Rochester knows about me anyway in the loss community, but um, I am not taking new patients. So but I always <laughs> take loss moms. So oh, yeah. um, if you have any trouble getting through the front door, just, you know, tell them I'm a lost mom and I'll, I'll make it work. So <laughs> oh, I love that. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I'm, again, I'm going to link all your info in the description here. Um, and honestly, keep in touch. I love what you're doing. And if there's oh, anything yeah. I can do to amplify your voice, I'm absolutely here for it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So we're a team. It takes a village to get some stuff done and it takes people with loud voices too. So thank you for yeah, being we one have of loud them. Voices. We're really good at that. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited to when your baby comes, you can do it one day at a time. Yeah. One day at a time. Yep. Just living by the did, clock. Did you hear, did I, I did a brief reel about what I did when I was pregnant with my triplets. So I, every morning in the shower, I would greet my babies. I'd say, good morning. Today we are 30 weeks in one day. What are we going to do? We're going to keep moving and we're not going to bring up my blood pressure. We're not going to break my water. And I would list all those things. So 
give yourself those positive affirmations too, because yeah. I really felt it. It really helped my anxiety during my very high birth pregnancy to affirm that I had this and tell my children what to do. So tell that baby what to do. Oh, oh yeah. I'm the boss, even though I feel like he yes. is. Oh, he <laughs> He's is. The boss. But, He's know. 100% the boss. Yeah. Oh, I love that tip. Thank yeah. you so much. Yes. I'll keep that in mind. So thank you so much for being in our corner. And um, uh, this should be out next week. So I'll send you the link. Perfect. Awesome. awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. We'll talk really soon. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Bye. Bye. That's all for this episode of the At A Total Loss podcast. If you'd like to help other lost moms benefit from our stories, please share, rate, and comment wherever you are listening. Thank you for being the strong mama that you are. And remember, when things have you at a total loss, we're here to help you find the light in the darkness. Take care, lost moms.